I'm excited to have Sean Seguin with us this morning, as I said last week, and um, he's going to come and share from God's Word with us. Sean was part of our church, he and Kayla, um, for several years uh, while he was in seminary, and uh, has been gone a couple years, but back in Texas, and he's going to tell us a little bit about that. But uh, I'd like you to welcome Sean to the stage this morning. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Great. Yeah. No one responded. <laughs> I didn't give you much time. Pause there. How's everybody doing? Great. Yeah. Oh, I heard horrible. No, I'm just kidding. Um, anyway, I am so excited to be here. Um, again, my name is Sean. Um, I found out I have this little laser pointer. I forgot about this. Um, so I get to do this stuff. Uh, <laughs> so that's me, Sean. Uh, that's Kayla, my wife. We've been married for almost eight years now. My daughter, Miette, is adorable, and she's three and a half, a lot of energy, a lot of talking, and uh, my one-year-old is Gideon, and uh, just so honored to be able to come here and share from at the place where God really began to cultivate our hearts even more so for ministry and heal our hearts in, uh, after a few years of ministry that uh, for a while it became a little difficult, and God just began to pour into our hearts here at Frisco Bible. So we are, I, I'm honored and blessed just to be able to come and share. So thank you so much. Uh, let's go ahead and pray before we get started. God, we thank you um, for this opportunity to come together, learn about our purpose and what we're called to do here. I just pray that you would breathe upon my words, upon our hearts, and that we might be changed today. In your name we pray, amen. So just three weeks ago, I'm sitting in a hospital lobby uh, with some of my family, um, and we're waiting for news about this tumor that was found in my biological father's brain just a few days prior. Um, we, he was in the middle of a biopsy that would last about four hours, and um, and so some of us sat and tried to ignore the reality of the situation by having a good conversation and, and you know, talking. But the, but the reality became very clear as soon as a tear would fall from a family member's eye and we'd be all brought back to the gravity of the situation, the seriousness of the situation. Um, and then still others tried to avoid the thought by attempting to sleep because they couldn't get sleep the night before with the fears and the worries of what ifs and all that stuff. And um, so the, the doctor finally comes out and calls my grandmother back. My grandmother's name, we call her Siti. Uh, it's a Lebanese expression. Um, but Siti goes back with the doctor and this five-minute conversation, which felt as long as the four-hour biopsy, um, you know, was, was just as rough. And so we wait to hear what, what's going on. And so my, my Sithi comes out, and her head is just down low, and she's kind of stumbling forward, you know, um, and, and, and she looks up for br briefly, and she looks back down, and she just, she just, you know, shakes her head no, um, which we knew was not good news. She stumbles to the chair, collapses in the chair right next to me, squeezes my hand as she proceeds to tell us all. He has three to six months. And then just a few days ago, we found out that it's extremely aggressive, and now it's down to a few weeks. And this world is not as it ought to be. You don't have to be a Christian to see it. 
You don't have to be a part of our religion. You don't have to be a part of a certain political party. All people see the brokenness in our world, and all people see a need to fix it. We see the inequality, the hatred, the violence. We see the brokenness. It's as clear as day. Anybody can see it, and everybody sees a need to fix it. It's a recognition of the deep truth that this world is not as it ought to be. What we're actually craving is a world filled with the glory of the Lord. We're craving the Eden for which we were made. This is a desire for something better engraved in our hearts because this is why we're here. Something claws from within us and screams, you were put on this earth to fill it with God's glory. It's there in us. Our purpose on this earth is God's glory. And here at FBC, I think we get this, right? It's in our mission statement. We are a redeemed community doing the great commission by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. That's the purpose of, all, of it all. We do the Great Commission because we want to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. That's what it's all about. But what does it mean to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord? What does that mean? I mean, this is a term used throughout the Old Testament. We see it used over and over again. What does it mean to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord? What does it mean to say that our purpose on this earth is God's glory? Genesis 1, 26 through 28, I think, gives us a clear picture of what that looks like. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Uh, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You catch this? God desires to fill the earth with his likeness and his image. That's beautiful. Reflecting and advancing God is what it means to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. We reflect and advance him, his will, his kingdom, his ways, his purposes. The reason we are on this earth is to reflect and advance God. And yet it seemed like, like we couldn't do it. Like humans just continue to fail from Adam and on. I mean, Adam does what? Instead of reflecting this mirror that's been given to him to perfectly reflect the likeness and image of God, instead of reflecting him perfectly, he reaches for his own self to take on God-likeness. And, and that mirror that was intended to reflect God becomes broken through sin and it seems like it just gets worse and worse and worse. And then by the time you get to Genesis 6, 11, you see Moses writes this. He says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. 
not filled with God's likeness and image, not filled with God's glory, filled with violence. See, when we are not properly reflecting God, all we do is advance our own kingdoms of wickedness, of brokenness, and and our own junk, our own ego. And instead of filling the earth with God's likeness and image, we fill it with our junk. And, and God tells Noah and his sons, he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. And we think maybe there's hope for humanity here. And no, immediately after that, we see the Tower of Babel, and they are trying to make a name for themselves. Again, furthering their own kingdoms, furthering their own things, reflecting their own brokenness. And then we have Abraham, and there's this promise about reach, you know, being a blessing to all nations, as far-reaching as all the earth, and, and then multiplying, being fruitful and multiplying. And yet the rest of the Old Testament, is, there's this question of whether these descendants of Abraham are going to actually fill the earth or bless the earth at all, or whether they're just going to be completely wiped out from it. And this is the meta-narrative of the story of Scripture that we see that from the very beginning, this drive to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord by reflecting and advancing. But we have the prophets. They begin to speak, and, uh, and as they begin to speak, there's, there's moments of hope, and we go, oh, wow, maybe it is still possible. And in fact, in Daniel, there's this dream that God gives Nebuchadnezzar. And in this dream, there's this image made of many different materials, you know, gold, iron, clay, silver, bronze. And these, these, these materials represent different kingdoms. And then he sees this stone cut out, not by human hands, and this stone is just thrown at the image. And here we read in, in Daniel 2.35, um, Daniel 2.35, it says, Uh, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This stone is Jesus and he comes to establish his kingdom, kingdom that tears down every other great power in this world. And, and as he establishes his, his kingdom, it turns into this mountain that fills the earth. That mountain is the people of God, the church filling the earth. Again, we know that God is not done with his purposes to fill the earth with his glory through us. Jesus becomes a better image bearer and a better advancer of God's kingdom. I love the, I love the fact that it, it, we, we see this mistake after mistake after mistake, and God does not give up on humanity. And God takes our warped and broken and soot-covered mirrors, and in Christ, he gives us his own. Jesus, his son, becomes our new mirror, reflecting God perfectly, we become the righteousness of God, rightly reflecting him. And, and we're given the ability to reflect, but then the command to advance. The Great Commission. Go therefore into all the nations. Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this idea of all nations going out. Again, fill the earth, fill the earth, fill the earth. It's all through scripture. And now we can finally do it because we can reflect through Christ. 
But I, I love the fact that, that it's not just there. We also see it in Mark that when it talks about, you know, going into all the world in Acts, we see that they will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. This is, God is not done. And so while our, our purpose on the earth is God's glory, our process is multiplication. And our process has always been multiplication. Genesis 1.28 that talked about reflecting him also said he, the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You can't fill the earth if you are not fruitful and multiplying. And this, again, this is this, is this great commission given to us by Jesus to go and fill the whole earth. And this is what we see in Acts. Acts chapters 1 through 5, this word that added is actually used, that, that, that their num- numbers were added to them daily. Believers were added to the church daily. But by chapter 6, he begins to use the term multiply. And in fact, chapter 6, verse 7, has this beautiful thing that happens. Chapter 6, verse 7, says, And the word of the Lord continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Increased and multiplied. These are from the two words, auxano and plethuno. Auxano is kind of this fruitful growth. It'd be used of trees and plants and stuff. And plethuno is used as of a numerical growth. It's this great increase, a lot. And, and what's amazing about this verse, and actually the word increase in the original Greek, is used there and actually multiplied is put at the beginning of the sentence in the Greek. So what you actually get is increase and multiply, oxano and plethuno, right next to each other. Now you're going like, I don't care, why, why does that matter, right? Because in Genesis 1.28, it actually uses these two words. Now I know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there was later a, a Greek translation of the Hebrew called the Septuagint. And what happens is they begin to use these Greek words, and Luke had read this. And what I love what Luke is doing here by putting them side by side, instead of using the regular Greek order where you put the verb in the beginning of the sentence, he puts it later so that they're side by side. And what happens is you get the command, be fruitful and multiply, auxano plethuno, and you also get increased and multiplied. Auxano and Plethuno, right next to each other. And what, what Luke seems to be pointing at is saying, just as the Great Commission was given in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply, now the, it is being fulfilled through the church. It's this beautiful thing that Luke begins to do for us. I, I, I love the poetry of Scripture. And so here we have... This, this reality that we as the church are called to continue to fill this earth with God's glory. And our purpose, while it's his glory, our process is multiplication. Multiplication. Now, I love that as, as a redeemed community, we should already be reflecting, right? So the question is, for Frisco Bible Church, how can we begin to advance? How do we here in Frisco begin to advance God's kingdom We can multiply disciples, multiply life groups, and multiply churches. We start with this idea of multiplying disciples. 
Now, when we talk about multiplying disciples, we need to talk about making disciples. I mean, the Great Commission was not go into all the world and find all the Christians and then teach them more about Jesus. It says make disciples. Now, continuing to bring new, you know, disciples under your wing, even if they're already Christians, is extremely important. We always need to be in discipling relationships, discipling others, and being discipled throughout our whole lives. But the Great Commission wasn't to go and find Christians. It was to go and make disciples. And so it's this, really this idea of going and actually evangelizing, actually giving life to someone that had, never, that had not received life, sharing the good news with them. And so discipleship without evangelism is missing, the, it is not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is evangelism and discipleship together. So we have to think in terms of, first of all, making new disciples. But making new disciples is not enough. Making disciples is simply addition. That's just addition. Now, for an example, my grandmother, Grandma Seguin, um, had eight children. Eight children. That's a lot of kids. Someone might say, man, that, that, they were multiplying like rabbits, you know. Um, but in, in reality, they added to their family. That's all it was. They added to their family. Now, those eight kids total had, so far have had 17 grandchildren. Um, so now you got this eight plus 17, and then those 17 grandchildren so far, and there's a lot more room for growth because there's a lot of young uh, grandchildren, but so far there's 10 great-grandchildren, and apparently there are 20 grand animals, I was told. So, <laughs> so we are, what, the, what you're beginning to see is this multi-generational addition where, I'm, where one person begins to bear fruit, that fruit begins to bear fruit, and that fruit begins to bear fruit. It's life giving life to giving life to giving life. That's what multiplication looks like. It's multi-generational. It's four generations or more just continuing to go on and on and on and on. And, and I love that we see this four-generation concept, actually, with Paul. In 2 Timothy 2.2, he says this. He says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. You get the four generations, Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others. Don't just teach. Teach people to continue to share as well. Pass on this life-giving process of multiplication. That's what, what we see Paul doing. This is what we're called to do. Now, I need to be honest with you and say that the first time I heard people talk about make disciples that make disciples that make disciples that make disciples, I thought, man, this sounds like a pyramid scheme for Jesus. <laughs> anybody, I mean, anybody like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and I, 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 as over the years, I began to think about this again and go, what, what does it mean you know, to make disciples, to make disciples. A pyramid scheme, you're going to be all about building your business. And so when you reach out to a new person, it's all about you. I mean, it's you getting, you getting, you growing your thing, whatever it is. You taking, you taking, you taking. When you make disciples, you are birthing new life, new spiritual life. There is a rebirth in the spirit that happens. It's this beautiful thing. We are, we are passing on life. We are giving life. And not only that, when you disciple, you lift them up onto your shoulders and, and you say, I want you to be better than I am. Discipleship is life-giving. And so when we talk about multiplying disciples, we are not talking about a pyramid scheme for Jesus. We are talking about a family tree rooted in Christ. 
that's the reality of what we're doing. So to fill our purpose, we should not only be multiplying disciples, but multiplying life groups. Now, I had a, a small group uh, years ago. We were best friends. That We grew up best friends. We had known each other forever. And there was this small group of ours that we were like, let's start, a, 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 you know, let's start meeting together and talking about the Bible together. And it was awesome. I mean, man, the closeness of that, that tight-knit you know,ness of this small group was amazing. Man, we loved each other well. We were vulnerable with each other. We shared whatever with one another. But there was this rule. And the rule was, you can't invite anybody into this unless we've all agreed that that person is a good fit for us. Sounds pretty exclusive. It's pretty exclusive. So I get the, I mean, the reason we did it was we, we wanted to protect the vulnerability. We wanted to protect the unity. But in reality, we didn't have unity. We had uniformity. We had people all from the same walk of life, all who knew each other forever, who would never really challenge each other in new ways. We didn't have true unity. We had that uniformity. And so, you know, I, I began to ask myself about this and thinking about in 1 Peter 4.9, there's this passage where Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why would we, we be tempted to grumble? What is hospitality? In fact, hospitality is this Greek word uh, philagzenos, and philagzenos comes from two Greek words, which mean love and stranger, philos and xenos, and so love and stranger. The idea of this hospitality is to make strangers neighbors, to take them in, and, and, and this is why it becomes difficult. This is why grumbling might happen, because now all of a sudden, especially when you think about the body of Christ, which all of a sudden it doesn't matter you know, what your age is. We're supposed to come together in Christ and be unified. It doesn't matter what your social class is, what your race is. Christ unifies us and makes us one so that we can all work together. And now that, it becomes difficult when cultures you know, come together like that at times. It's not always easy, but what's wonderful is it begins to, to take off those rough edges. It begins to smooth us out and help us to realize the needs that we have. And so how can we do this? How can we show hospitality to one another without grumbling? How can we do that if we are not inviting new people in that challenge our little world? And so I, I, I want to challenge you guys. I mean, start thinking about this. Start thinking about who you might be able to invite to your small groups, to your life groups. Now, there was this article in Christianity Today that said, uh, talking about five mistakes that ruin small groups, and one of them was staying together too long. I thought this was really fascinating, and it gave a few reasons. One of them was that we deny others the opportunity to experience this authentic relationship, this beautiful um, community. Um, the other thing is that we don't develop people into leaders. You don't need to develop new leaders because you have your couple of leaders who run the whole thing and there's no need to go send them off uh, to send anybody off so you don't need to raise anybody up. But then on top of that, we're, we are missing out on fresh and new perspectives and we lose missional focus. We become stagnant. So I encourage you, begin to think about who you might be, go, be able to invite to your life groups. Grow by addition first. Invite, invite the people you're discipling. 
It's that simple. Just start, if, you've make, if you're making disciples, invite them to your life group, especially if you're an older life group, a more mature life group. If you're a more mature life group, you might be, in, you know, you might be discipling someone who's younger. Man, bring them in there. It would be formative for them and formative for you guys. It's a great thing to see that happen. And so, um, so begin to invite people so that you begin to add so much that good conversation's not possible anymore, and you need to begin to think about splitting. You need to begin to think about raising up leaders and equipping the saints for the work of the ministry so that you might send them out. And then as you begin to add life groups, then you begin to think, we want to pass on the, the mindset of multiplication, the DNA of being fruitful, creating life groups that create life groups that create life groups that continue to give life and fill our neighborhoods. That's, this is the idea of what I, I want. I think throughout the Gospels, throughout the whole of Scripture, we want to see, God wants us to see this happening, us filling the earth. And these are just very practical ways, you know, multiplying disciples, multiplying life groups. So filling the earth with the glory of the Lord will not, uh, will not only require us to multiply disciples and life groups, but it also will require us to multiply churches. Multiply churches. Now, I think it's really fascinating. In Acts 1.8, they're given this, this, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And yet we don't hear anything about Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth until Acts 8.1. For like almost eight chapters, they sit in Jerusalem. The church is growing and thriving and multiplying in Jerusalem, but we don't see movement where Jesus told them they were going to go. Now, as you know, I mean, when you begin to see growth in, in your church in your community, it feels good. And especially with this kind of community, you could feel like you were part of some kind of underground movement. Thousands were coming to, to, to Christ. Thousands were being added, you know, and then all this. And so it feels like you're part of something really deep and something really cool. So who would want to move outward? Who would want to leave this beautiful community and go elsewhere and start something else? But this is what they were called to do. This is what they were told they would go and do. And it's not until eight chapter eight chapter eight, chapter eight verse one that we begin to see that happen, and in eight one, they don't even leave the uh, leave Jerusalem on purpose. It's because they were scattered through persecution. Persecution pushes them outward. They're forced to leave. It's almost as if if like they they. they they were just stuck in their ways, and it's like, this is going to get them out of here. So they, you know, they begin to move outward, and what do they do? They begin to start house churches out in different places, and in 8.1, it says they fled to Judea and Samaria, and they shared the word everywhere they went. It's so tempting for us to just continue to build our little place, and it feels good, and it feels comfortable, but God wants to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord, and he does that through multiplying, multiplying churches. Now, I had never thought of this idea of church planting. In fact, I never thought I would be a church planter or missionary or anything like that ever, ever, ever. My wife and I were like, no, that won't happen um, because we don't ever want to be the people who were relying on other people to give us money, going to our friends and going, hey, um, so we're doing this thing and I promise it's really godly and it's great. You know, we were all worried about this like, what does it mean to raise funds? And what does it mean, you know? And, and we loved stability. We loved having a, a paycheck. 
Well, God rocked our boats. I think here's what happened. I, be, I began to talk to a friend in Austin who was a part of a church planting movement, and they are planting, they're multiplying churches like crazy. Um, and he was asking me, he's like, have you ever thought about church planting? And I was like, yeah, I mean, if you could hook me up with a paid gig and do that, then maybe I'd do it. <clears throat> but as I went away from that conversation, I, I was in my times of prayer daily. I kept coming back to Austin church plant. Austin church plant. And I was like, okay, God, all right, all right, all right. I need to think about this. I need to think about what does this mean? So like, how do I go home and tell my wife that we need to sell our, pray about selling our house, moving our family to Austin. We were in Michigan at the time. Um, (laughs) And, and, uh, oh, and raising funds and living off support. So I was like, you know what? I'll go home for lunch. I don't ever go home for lunch. It'll be a good way to have a good conversation. I go home, and she's all excited. She's like, you came home to hang out with me. I love you so much. And then I'm like, yeah, let's pray about moving to Austin, selling our home, and doing this. Her response was no. (laughs) She said, I'm not going to pray about that right now. Um, She was mad at me. She was like, you came home. You never come home, and then you want to talk about this. She was like, just go back to the church. Like... Like, all right, fine, you know. But the reality was she told me later on, she's like, you know, I knew deep down inside, like, there was something real about what you were talking about that I needed to truly think about, and, uh, and it was scaring me. And so as we began to pray about it separately, and, and uh, God just blew us away and said, nope, this is what you're going to do. <laughs> and we were like, okay, what does that mean, you know? Um, and, and so we, we're, we're going, okay, I guess we're called to do this. So we began to... we sold. We put our house up for sale. We began to talk to friends and family and churches about raising support. And, um, and then before we had all the support raised, we headed to Austin because we sold our house. And, and we were living with friends, and we're, and we're still in the process of raising support. And we're, it, I mean, this whole thing was crazy. And we got there, and, and, um, and we, uh, God just orchestrated things so that we got plugged in. There was a church that's a new church plant and giving us the opportunity to kind of come in. And they, they were like, we'd love to be a part of sending you. Frisco Bible Church said, man, we want to be a part with the, of this somehow. So there are multiple churches that are going, how can we get in on this? Because we love your heart. We love what you're doing. And, and, um, and so God just like orchestrates this whole thing. And, and within the next couple years, uh, we should be planting in Austin. Now, all that being said, there was a point when, when I said, okay, let's go, let's do it, and we were like ready to go. And then these questions began to hit me. Why do we need more churches? Why in the world do we need more churches? I don't have like a special like word from the Lord that's different from other churches. Like the gospel's the gospel, you know, I mean, I'm preaching the same stuff. Why do we need more churches? And so I said, all right, let me do some research. And what I found was, through population increase and church closings, there's been a huge disparity. 1900, in, in the year 1900, 28 churches, there were 28 churches for every 10,000 Americans. In 1950, there were 17 churches for every 10,000 Americans. In 2000, there were 12 churches for every 10,000 Americans. And now in Austin, there are 4.75 churches for every 10,000 Austinites. So you begin to see this disparity and you go, oh my goodness. Maybe there, aren't, there isn't a church on every corner. But maybe, maybe that's because there's just not very many Christians. People stop being interested in church. Why would building another church be, make this any better, right? These are the questions. I'm asking the questions too. I know you're thinking it. I was thinking, I'm going, why is this going to make it any better? 
Um, and so I did some more research, and I found that per capita, churches that are zero to three years old are two, see two times the conversions that, ch- that are churches than churches that are three to 15 years old, and three times the conversions of those that are 15 years and older. Now, why is that? Like, I, I don't fully understand it. I, I have a few theories. I think First of all, building something new, people get excited about and will check it out. It's just, just how it is. People will check out something new. Second of all, when you are a church plant, you don't have any options except to evangelize. You have to share the gospel. And if you don't, you die. This little group starts up, and if, if they're just going to sit in their little holy huddle and never share the gospel, that church will not grow, and that church will not be able to make it. I mean, that's just the reality of it. So church planting necessitates extreme amounts of evangelism. The, the, the DNA of multiplication is all over it. And so this is the reality. And what I, I found as I got into this research was this quote um, that has been used over and over and over throughout church planting. I had never heard it until I started reading this stuff, but uh, it's a quote by C. Peter Wagner. Now, later on in his life, some of his ministry, some of his theology was kind of off, uh, but I, I think there was, he was a solid missiologist, um, and he was, he was well-respected in that, in that area. In fact, he was the former professor of church growth at Fuller Seminary. Um, just great stuff. And this is, this is the quote that is so famous, is this. The single most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven is planting new churches. This is a guy who's been studying this stuff, doing the research, and he says, look, if we want to reach our world, we need to start new churches. It's amazing. So I was convinced, and I said, all right, God. I was convicted first, but now I'm convinced. Um, we need to do more than plant churches, though, then. We need to plant, church, plant a church that plants churches that plants churches that plants churches. We need to think of this multiplication mindset of growth giving life to giving life to giving life. And this is why we sold everything. And this is why we are still raising support. This is why we are looking for people to, uh, to come and, and help us in our calling. So if you are interested, come and talk to us afterward. At our, we have a little table out there. My wife and I will be there. Come and talk to us because if you feel like, man, God's saying, yeah, I want to be a part of this, come and join us. Don't worry, I've gotten the okay to say that. I'm not just trying to steal people. But if you want to be part of helping build a community that's going to be doing these kinds of things in Austin, um, please join us. Um, come talk to us. I mean, and, and it's so cool that we get to partner with the church that ordained me. Um, it's such a blessing. But I think some of us are still worried, like, is this going to turn into a big numbers thing? I think that's a great question. And I think if... if it's only multiplication, then yes, it's a numbers thing. But if we're thinking in terms of filling the earth with the glory of the Lord, if that's our purpose, then no, it's not just a numbers thing. If we're thinking about reflecting and not just advancing, then we realize it's more than that. But if we, if we only are thinking about multiplication, advancing without reflecting, yeah, we'll multiply violence and ego and our own little kingdom and we'll do our own thing But if we are this redeemed community doing the Great Commission by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God, I mean, man, yeah, let's do it. Let's multiply. So when we look at the brokenness in this world and we think it's not as it ought to be, let our hearts not be discouraged but set ablaze 
with the passion to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. God, may we be fruitful and multiply. Multiply disciples, life groups, and churches and fill the earth with your glory. We eagerly await the day that you put an end to all things that do not reflect you, all sin, injustice, and oppression. We look forward to the day you wipe away every tear and bring an end to all sickness and death. We were not made for this broken world. Help us to reflect and advance you as we await the home for which our hearts crave. Amen.